comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. That's Mark 10, 1 to 16. I'll read that for us. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Good morning, Renewal. Um, my name is David Kim. I'm one of the pastors at Renewal Mainline. It is my privilege and my honor to worship with you, and it is my greater privilege to share with you this morning uh, this passage from Mark chapter 10. Let me start with a question. What's, what is the most difficult question that you have ever faced in your life? Something that you really struggle to answer thoroughly or successfully. Maybe you, time to time you would try to answer it this way or that way. There's, no, there's just not a good answer to it. Mine happens at home. That question comes up at home for me. The question is, can I have a candy? It's the hardest question, one of them, in my life. Why? Because it's usually around the mealtime. And my kids did not inherit uh, my appetite. Um, whether it's a DNA issue or grown that way, I don't care. They just don't have it. I am blessed with a great amount of appetite. And uh, I withhold myself. Uh, they're the opposite. Uh, and it's very easy to blame, blame it on my wife, a very thin woman and just to see my children just struggle to eat, but they are great at eating candy. So it's very difficult when they ask, Daddy, can I eat one candy? Um, many times I'm that guy, that horrible human being that's getting in the way of that one joy in their life, that thrill, and I'm this horrible human being. Uh, other times I'm this guy that's letting this, this dopamine into their lives and I'm just struck 
with the difficulty of the situation. Um, here's the problem with that that I struggle with. Um, sometime I, I would go with, uh, let's not have junk food ever, and that, that never comes out well. Um, there's that frustration that comes from them, as well as to me. Am I a horrible father? Or uh, I, I'll say, uh, let's not have junk food before a meal. And then, this is true story, they would have a debate with me and say, when exactly is before the meal? Is it 30 minutes before? Is it an hour? Two, I, I literally had this conversation with my, both of my children, and they were fierce about defending their position. We're still, this is way before the meal time. Here's the problem. We are actually not talking about the same issue. We're not thinking about the same desire. Their purpose is different than my purpose. Mine is their well-being, their good eating habit, our good family time as we're eating well together, finishing their meal, uh, for their nourishment, their discipline, all this. What do you think they care about? The actual candy. They don't care about eating well. Uh, and it doesn't matter if I tell them that, because I tell them that. It doesn't come across. For them, they say, yes, Father, but when can I have the candy? Sadly, I think we could, as adults and teenagers and students, and we could relate to this experience too often when we're asking that candy question to God. Can I have this? Is this okay, Lord? Am I doing the right thing? Or how much can I do and not be considered as doing the wrong thing? That question is a candy question. It's a limitless question. It gets to the question when we ask God, operating on what my heart desires ultimately, not what He desires. This question with a different agenda. That's something that we see here in today's passage, where Pharisees come to Jesus and ask the question. Seems like they're asking about something, but Jesus reveals that they're actually working on something else. So today's passage, Pharisees ask this question uh, about the topic of divorce. And we're going to see that Jesus speaks much more than divorce. We're going to see it in three, three points. Uh, the first is the question itself question. And then the second one is the response of Jesus. The third is the solution that Jesus provides. First is, is the solution that he asks, or they ask. Second is the response of Jesus. And third, the solution that he provides. So let's go over them. So what was the actual question that the Pharisees asked Jesus? Up until this point in chapters 1 through 9 in Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, we've, we've seen Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Um, starting in today's passage, chapter 10, Jesus goes to Judea and beyond the Jordan, uh, and crowds gather to him again, and once again he starts to teach them. So this is a different setting now, from Galilee to this uh, beyond Jordan, this Judea. The previous place, Galilee, was identified by its simple and a strongly nationalistic peasantry. Um, Judea was very different. It was identified by its uh, sophisticated city dwellers. 
It was dominated by Jerusalem, meaning dominated by temple. The people of the temple ruled. The culture, the actual people, the leaders were the Sadducees and Pharisees. So then why do these Pharisees come to ask this question in verse 2? Verse 2 reveals um, the intention. This is the question they ask. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 2 actually openly reveals the intention of their question. They came up, this says, and asked this question in order to test him. They wanted to test Jesus. You see quickly here that they didn't care about the wisdom or what Jesus had to offer as to its content. They weren't asking for the guidance. They weren't curious as to the actual answer to the question. It had another agenda. It was to test him. You'll see in verse 4, when Jesus asks a counter question, they're very well-versed in their answers already. They're prepared. They, they respond back and forth. They know the answers. They weren't coming to Jesus to ask. They were to trick Jesus. Why do they want to do that? Why does anyone want to trick Jesus? Why do they think this would trick him? Let's actually talk about why this would. Why would the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? A trick question. This is what they wanted to hear from Jesus. This Jesus, if they could trap him into saying something reckless, they wanted to hear something reckless publicly. Because this is a public figure, a very popular rabbi. And if he says something wrong publicly, he will, they will accuse him of either having contradicted either the law of Moses or this interpretative tradition. Either one. They were trying to get him and say, aha, look at this phony, look at this bad guy. They didn't like him. They didn't like this rising star that everyone's talking about. And um, the teaching seems to be solid and impactful, yet too radical to them, too accusing to them. The more they were actually hearing it, the more they were threatened and the security and the privileges that they held in their social status and their impact. So they felt threatened. They wanted to bring him down. And this wasn't the only time people were trying to trick Jesus. They, they were asking about, you'll see, even just from Mark, that they'll question, they'll question this, this ask, uh, asking of this question of resurrection in chapter 12 or another tax question in chapter 12, uh, verse 15. Other Gospels are filled with these trick questions. All of these are attempts to make G Jesus incriminate himself. They wanted to really get him, to which all, all of them failed. So today's passage, uh, if you consider it as, a, as an exhaustive teaching of Jesus about divorce, uh, it, we're actually looking at the wrong place. Um, Although, like all of Jesus' pronouncements, it did become a teaching occasion about the topic, but he goes deeper, deeper into the layer of the heart issue. So if, we, if you are actually uh, curious as to the actual topic of divorce, if you want a fuller treatment of this very difficult topic of divorce, there are passages uh, like Matthew 5, verse 32, or Paul's teachings, uh, in his pastoral approach to those guidance and around marriage. And if you're actually st seriously struggling through this topic of divorce, if you're in need of guidance, 
uh, or if, if you uh, would like uh, to have more conversation or support through this, as Daniel has announced and as we announce every week, please come to us. We, will, we, we want to talk to you. We want to be right there for you through this time. So please come to talk to us. But it's quite the opposite of what the Pharisees were trying to do today in this passage. They weren't coming to Jesus for his wisdom. They weren't asking for his guidance through this topic. You'll see later Jesus, Jesus does address it. He does talk about it. He doesn't say, you're not talking about this, so let's not talk about it. Let's talk about something. He's actually addressing the issue straight on. But just in every other trick question Jesus faces, he sees right through them, and then he digs several layers deeper into the discourse. And then you'll see Jesus here addressing the heart below it that asks this question. He straight up just asks, why are you asking this question? What are you working on? The Pharisees thought they could get Jesus easily with this question. Why, why did they underestimate him? Because uh, think about the actual interaction that they faced. Uh, the reputations that Jesus' people had, right? They, they saw him and his disciples hanging out with these sinners, like tax collectors, these uh, prostitutes. Pharisees saw Jesus um, and his disciples just having this uh, loose adherence to this, these traditions that they held so religiously to, this tradition of Sabbath. And uh, he was so forgiving. He, he, he didn't have that clear-cut um, that the legal, powerful aspect to it, where they actually really held that strength. Um, he was so forgiving, so they, they accused him of laxity, uh, licentiousness. Um, they suspected that uh, this, this Galilean rabbi will have a lax view on sexual morality. They thought Jesus would actually say something wrong immediately. So they, they, they thought this was a nice question. So the first point of this passage was that Pharisees did not wish to obtain Jesus' guidance on the issue of divorce, but they wanted to trick him instead to compromise himself. Second point, what was the response then? How did Jesus respond, the initial response? To the question, Jesus brings two things. First, he addresses the heart. He goes right into the heart. Why are you? asking this question. In fact, I know why you're asking it. And second, he does address the topic. That's the beautiful wisdom that Jesus brings in all of his discourses. He doesn't dismiss it. He brings a deeper layer into the conversation. Pharisees weren't expecting this. So first, he reveals the heart. Read verse 3 with me. It says, Jesus responds back and says, what did Jesus, what did, I'm sorry, what did Moses command you? Pharisees asked, is it lawful? And his response is, what did Moses say? Do you know what you're asking? Pharisees are now taking one step back. They have to because they thought this was an easy trick. And Jesus goes straight into the law. And he says, what does the law say? So that, that take, takes all of them back straight to Moses immediately, removes all those suspicions of heterodoxy. Jesus is making it clear that his teachings aren't to dismiss God's law. He's to bring a new depth to the law, to fulfill it, to complete it. 
So Pharisees readily respond in verse 4. That's interesting because he, they, it seems like they're ready to answer it. They, it seems like they're communicating. We know what we're talking about. The verse 4, they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to Anne to send her away. And um, Pharisees are already making a yield of some ground because Jesus is smart here. He's wise because he's saying here, what did Moses command? What did he command you? And Pharisees dare, could not dare say, Moses commanded to write a certificate of divorce. They couldn't say it. They had to say, all they could say was that Moses allowed a certificate of divorce. They already are showing to some consciousness of the weakening of their position. They're going against themselves. And to that, Jesus blows the next punch in verse 5. He says, that's because of our hardness of heart. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. The first century, this audience, the culture of the first century was a time in which divorce was very easy and common. And, and regardless of religion, it wasn't just the, the, the pagan um, nation. It wasn't the, everyone was doing that, including uh, the, the, the Judaism. And it was a generation where God's true values and purposes of marriage were really long gone. People weren't concerned about honoring God through their marriage. That's the danger to legalism, isn't it? Legalism uh, will, will, will mask you to do the right things by possessing over and obsessing over the boundaries you can actually think that you could do anything within the boundary. You think there's a clear-cut wrong and right, so that as long as you're staying here, you're doing the right thing. In fact, you're doing the good thing. You're the good person. You're the best person. Jesus sees right through that and points it out to Pharisees. He points out that this is out of the sinful human heart against God's will. Even in the time, as early as Moses' time, people committed adultery and variety of defiance of all marriage codes and all moral codes. We see that in the Old Testament. Pharisees knew that. They all knew that the humanity was corrupted in that way. So if this was between uh, an open adultery versus an easy divorce, it was a lesser of two evil for Israel, for Moses to put that in the law to permit it. At least protect yourself this way. The law is a protection against our sinful nature. That's what the law is supposed to do. Instead of thinking that it will actually lead us to a righteousness or an everlasting life, law is to protect us from our sinfulness. And that's the root of the discussion that Jesus gets right into. He says, let's talk about that instead of assuming that we don't have anything to talk about there. What's going on there? He says, you want to talk about divorce? Let's talk about divorce. In fact, let's talk about why you would bring that up. Let's talk about why this is a difficult question. Let's talk about why you think you could get me with this. Let's talk about the actual problem. It's the heart. Ever since creation, it was good, but ever since the fall, problem arose. 
what's beautiful here when Jesus is doing this is that when he brings up into the next step, he doesn't conjure up another uh, gospel, another saying. He actually goes right into Genesis, which Pharisees were well-equipped. They had deep respect. And as a part of their Torah, Jesus says in verse 6 to 9, let me read that for us. Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He goes right into the creative mandate before the fall. Here, a commentator says, God's initial act and purpose itself here in creating male and female. He shows that this marital union was God's plan all along. Jesus assumes that Pharisees are fully aware that marriage was instituted by God for mutual companionship and support, quoted here by Genesis 2.18. So when Pharisees say, is it lawful? Jesus responds, that's not enough. That's not enough of a question. It's not enough to just ask, is it sin or not? Can I do it or am I not allowed to do it? A deeper layer exists that must be addressed, the layer of the heart. We, we talked about it several weeks ago when we said out of the heart, out of, out of the heart that comes out what's really in there. And Jesus says we need to go back to the basis. He recalls us to God's absolute standard. He recalls us to God's good intention of marriage, God's standard, God's intention for marriage, for his creative mandate. So what's that standard that we're working on? What is that standard that we assume that we are fallen and that that good creator God isn't there so we have to work with our sinfulness? That's when legalism comes in handy. When you hold on to that law and say, this is what protects us. You abide by that law. What is the intention that drives our hearts? Is it to glorify the eternal creator God and in his creative mandate, what he meant to do and see in the creation? Or is it to satisfy the creation? Is it to satisfy our hearts? What are we working on? Without these uh, intentional faith and trust in God's standard and intention, we can easily fall into the thinking pattern of this Pharisee's thought. What can I get away with? We need to look into our hearts. We need to ask the questions and to ask the legitimacy of the ground of our thoughts and desires. Instead of assuming that they're all good and necessary, you see how when we have those questions, rarely, it's very challenging to go and sit down and ask, am I asking a fair question? What am I asking? Do you ask that in yourself? Because if you don't do that, you could easily get entangled and deeply into this trap that exists in what Jesus calls a hardened heart. A hardened heart. Our heart, a sinful heart, will actually try to protect itself away from God. 
When Jesus reveals this deeper layer behind the discourse, we see the problem. The problem is the hardened heart. Instead of God's kingdom-oriented heart, we operate on my kingdom-oriented heart. That's what hardened heart does. It tries to serve ourselves. So what do we do? What do we do with this? What's the solution to this horrible problem that Jesus faces head-on? That's the third point for today's sermon, the solution. In verse 13, whether the scene completely changes or not, we don't see that. Uh, But what we see is that it's the immediate next scene that follows verse 12 when Jesus is done speaking to the disciples. He usually does this in Mark where he speaks publicly and then he comes back to disciples. That's the nature of disciples, right? When we say, okay, but I actually do now care about the content now. Jesus, can you clarify? And then he sat them down and taught them more up till verse 12. And then verse 13, the scene changes. And then we see these people bringing their children to Jesus so that they could, that the children can be touched by him. Um, for some reason, uh, Mark puts this together, right? Maybe it happened right in the same place, actually. Maybe it happened right after, or maybe there's an intention behind it. The parent followers wanted Jesus to bless the children, and it could have been a superstitious desires, but the disciples rebukes them. They say, hey, back off. Stop. He's tired. What are you doing? This is off limits. This is, this is bad. Move the children away from Jesus. And Jesus here, it says Jesus gets indignant. That's a strong word. It's almost as if we're saying Jesus got mad at them. So imagine that, that the fury, righteous anger, let's put it, because we know that that wasn't a sinful thing. In other words, that, that, that in, in indignant feeling was actually justified when he said, this is bad, guys. Let them come to me. What are you guys doing? Let them come. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He continues in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does this mean? Uh, What does this mean when he says to receive the kingdom of God like a child? A commentator puts this in this way. The reference here is to the trustfulness of a child. The innocent faith uh, placed by a child in one whom it loves. The trustfulness of a child. A childlike faith. Receiving the kingdom of God like a child. The solution that God brings to our hardened hearts is a childlike faith. There's a vivid comparison that he's making between what he's saying here and the previous conversation about what happened with the Pharisees. This vivid imagery between this childlike faith and a hardened heart. A hardened heart calculates. It asks, how much is it not sinful? How much can I get away with and still get what I want? It has this hidden agenda that hides behind the question. As if it's a fair question. Its own purpose is to serve its own heart. It's my kingdom-oriented. An idolatrous heart. 
Now Jesus draws an opposite image here, a heart that has a childlike faith. A childlike faith does not calculate. It does not eyeball around to see what it can get its hands on. Instead, there's this total trust. There's an absolute sense of trust in this father to that child. The child believes that the father is good, powerful, and that his intention is to love him, that he wants the best for him. That's a childlike faith. I could do a word play here where childlike faith is different than a childish faith. I feel like the childish faith actually serves more in representing the hardened heart. We're almost to God's eyes. I think when Pharisees thought they were so smart and asking these questions, I think it was childish. Just like when we're asking, can I have some candy? And pretending that this is a pretty good question. When is it? But God sees right through that of that childish faith, if it is faith at all. When we say, you know we don't trust you. You know we have to work all by ourselves, so give us some answers. Rather, Jesus says a childlike faith, a total trust in the goodness of the Father, the might of the Father. And when we, we, we said this previously in the previous sermons that when we, when you and I don't believe what God has said is true, what, what he said is good and best, that's because we believe in something else, something else that's better, something else that's more true, that we're convicted of, that idol that we're trying to serve. This is where we see our desperate hopelessness because if you can stop and think about it, when Jesus says, the answer is a childlike faith, can you do it? I, I, I failed all the time when I tried to conjure up that faith and try to hold on to God without any doubt, with total adherence to his word, and tr trying to trust that he's good, but there are temptations all the time when it asks are you sure? Are you sure that's, that's the best way to do it? But what about this way and that way that might serve us the right way? Our heart will all, that hardened heart will always do what it's best at, is to serve our own. And we cannot conjure up that childlike faith. We are incapable of creating such new heart that puts a total trust to God which is why Christ becomes absolutely necessary because he is the ultimate child who never grew out of his childlike faith in God the Father. He trusted God, God the Father. He obeyed his commands. He obeyed even when it entailed give up your own life. He asked in that discussion, he said, can you take this away? This doesn't make sense. I don't get it. But if you will, let your will be done. I'll obey you. Jesus does that. And let me read today's last verse, verse 16. 
now he's enabled as that childlike faith that true son that ultimate eternal son of god he can do verse 16 and he took the children in his arms and he blessed them laying his hands on them that's what he did on the cross where he takes us in his arms and he blesses us when we're the children without the childlike faith only that childish heart that does not trust in God's goodness when we said no to our God the Father Jesus comes and takes us puts us in his arms and he blesses us and he lays his hands that are dripping with his blood and he renews our hearts that was the promise that was fulfilled on the cross that's what enables us to fully trust in God again that renewal of this old heart to a new one now we have a new heart in Christ alone we can trust that his will is for the best that instead of pursuing our own kingdom and asking how to not sin now our destination goes beyond over to this eternal glory of God in his own kingdom that Christ first started and that he's inviting us into in that moment when you have that total trust a childlike faith the law does not become just a boundary itself it becomes a delight it becomes wisdom it becomes protection it becomes peace not because the law itself has that power but because of that eternal almighty powerful and loving father in heaven and I hope you don't hear that when you're asking questions uh, that, that, that you would always go in yourself, to yourself and say, ah, oh, that's not the question. It's the heart issue. I hope when you're actually asking the real question to real difficult topics, I hope you ask and ask the good God, good Father. Ask Him. I am nowhere near the goodness of my eternal Father, and yet if my children actually comes up and say, hey, can you actually explain what do you mean by this candy thing? Why can't I have some candy? It would be horrible for me to say, just listen to me. We have conversations. I work patiently, but I fail. There are times where I say, you know what? Because I say so. But God is much more patient than myself. He is more patient than you. He's more patient than any of the Father that you have physically experienced as a human interaction. He is there to guide you he provides and he provides explanations too please do not do not hesitate to ask him he will give you answers but if you're asking the candy question if you're asking aha i got you see now please give me this or the other way of ha you don't give me this you must not love me you must not fill in the blank what questions do you struggle with? Let me conclude it with that. What questions do you struggle with? God asks us to take a look into our hearts, and he asks us, do you trust me? 
Is there a deeper heart issue that Christ can reveal to you when he says, have faith in me? If you have never once put your trust in Christ as the eternal son with this childlike faith, I humbly and eagerly invite you to do so, to accept him as your Lord, as your Savior, as the one that will successfully carry you through this turmoil. If you already have committed to him, and if you're struggling through this journey, let me encourage you to continue growing in the faith that he has already given to you. Our faith grows. It grows daily through our repentance, through our means of grace, his grace in his word, in his prayer. We could continue to put our trust in God that he is good, that he is loving. So I hope we continue that. I hope that becomes our daily routine as a childlike community that desperately hangs on to our good Father. And I pray that you would be assured in that, that Jesus will hold on to us. I hope that our heart is at peace knowing that his faith will not be moved because he got us now. Let's pray. Can I invite us to just spend some moment to pray in response to Jesus' challenge here when he asks us what's in our hearts? Do we ask those questions when we struggle, when we really struggle? Do we ask the question, what's in my heart? Let's respond to that. Let's pray.